Hey, everybody. Welcome to Artifice episode 25. You guys, we are a quarter of the way to 100. It's amazing. I'm so proud. Oh, I mentioned it last week, but I feel like my summer was so busy and I feel like already just we're just a few days into September when I'm recording this. I feel like things are just like calming down. I feel like invigorated. I have like tons of creative energy. I'm doing a million projects. Um, I've got some like pretty, um, what I think is very exciting stuff to announce um, this fall. So hopefully like, you know, in the next month or so. So I don't know, I guess I'm just saying vaguely, stay tuned for some cool things. Um, all right, today's episode is with poet Joel Long. I've been trying to get a poet on this podcast for such a long time, and I had such a great conversation with Joel. I just loved it. So let me tell you a little bit about him. Joel Long's book, Winged Insects, won the White Pine Press Poetry Prize, Lessons in Disappearance, written in 2012, and Knowing Time by Light in 2010, were published by Blaine Creek Press. His chapbooks, Chopin's Preludes and Saffron Beneath Every Frost, were published from Ellick Press. His poems and essays have appeared in Gettysburg Review, Sports Literate, Prairie Schooner, Bellingham Review, Rhino, Bitter Oleander, Massachusetts Review, Terrain, and Waterstone Review, among others. And he lives here in Salt Lake City. You guys, here comes Joel Lung. Sometimes art feels like magic, pure, visionary. And sometimes it's brought to you in part by focus groups and algorithms. And the makers of art are no different. We're creatives, sure, but we're also salespeople. We need imagination and imitation. We need deep, meaningful connections, but we also have to network. Yep, even if you're an introvert. And that's my point. Balancing vulnerability with veneer is tricky, and it's a struggle we don't often share. So let's share. I'm Emily Merrill, and this is Artifice. Today's episode of Artifice is brought to you by Vocal Mist. Vocal Mist is an incredible tool for singers, actors, public speakers, teachers, team leaders, and anyone for whom vocal health is a daily necessity. The latest findings indicate that using a nebulizer with isotonic saline can actually help your vocal cords create sound with reduced pressure. Featuring a removable face mask and USB rechargeable lithium batteries, Vocal Mist is an accessible way of getting rid of dry mucus, alleviating allergies, and keeping your voice working easily at any time of day. Visit myvocalmist.com and use promo code ARTIFICE, that's all caps A-R-T-I-F-I-C-E, for $10 off your Vocal Mist bundle package today. Okay. How does that sound and feel? Sounds fun. Okay, great. Slightly awkward, but that's yeah. okay. Yeah. You just mean like getting used to the sound? Yeah, well, getting used to the sound and, you know, doing a podcast. Yeah. I don't think I've ever done a podcast. I may have been on the radio, but... It's, uh, a, it's kind of a... I mean, it's not a new medium, but it certainly is like kind of having a boom. Um, but don't worry, I will take good care of you. <laughs> oh, are you so, sure? Um, you yeah. can edit out all my ums? <laughs> I will not edit anything, No, well, you but I promise to ask... <laughs> good questions and right. it's just, it's chill. So my goal is really like, I want to talk to people about their process. I want to talk to people kind of about like how they, 
you know, philosophize about art mm-hmm. and creativity. And so, I mean, any kind of tangents you feel inspired to go down or if you want to kind of, you know, change a subject, if there's something that's on your mind in terms of art. Um, but in order to kind of help us stay organized, I usually like to kind of go in like three parts. Mm-hmm. So I'll sort of start with like the beginning and kind of just like how you started doing creative things as a young person. Um, and then we'll talk about kind of like, you know, that middle portion where you're transitioning into like being a professional. And then we can kind of get into the weeds about like art and identity and stuff like that. So that sounds fine. I could talk about any of those things for as long as Great. Long, I know. I feel the same way. I mean, being a professional, that's a, a, as a poet. Yeah. We don't make a lot tricky of money. Tricky business. It's yeah. a tricky business. We every <laughs> once in a while we get some money and you know, you get a grant or you yeah. get you win a prize or something, but it's not Yeah, you gotta be scrappy about those things, I'm sure. Yeah. So let's start at the beginning. Um I'd love to know, just like as a as even like a very small child, um how did you kind of start doing creative things or like what sorts of creative things were you doing as a kid? Oh, as a young child, certainly we just did drawings. I remember just doing crayon drawings um, as a child. My grandmother had a trick for drawing little tiny trains, and I tried to figure oh, cool. out that trick. They were, you know, they were, yeah. you know, six by six or something like this. But she yeah. had some sort of a trick where she'd draw a chair. Yeah. And then she would make the engine of the locomotive. And I was just fascinated with that yeah. to start with. Yeah. And of course, you know, I tried my hand at that and did a number of other things. Uh, we just had the 50th anniversary of the, uh, the lunar landing. Yeah. And, uh, I remember, uh, drawings I did as a child of the Apollo, uh, spaceships. Yeah. And, you know, wow. I must've looked at them in the newspaper and tried to make big drawings of those, uh, musically. <laughs> I have funny beginnings. I don't think I started playing music uh, as a child, but I listened a lot. Yeah. I, you know, I was sort of obsessed with you know popular stuff like the Partridge family yeah. and the Osmonds eventually. But those things led to other music and other realms of creativity as yeah. well. You felt I, kind of exploratory. Yeah. Yeah. As a child, I lived, uh, I lived in Great Falls, Montana. Okay. And, uh, we lived three blocks from the Charlie Russell Museum. Uh, Charles M. Russell, to me, is the greatest Western artist, mm. period. Uh, and, you know, I didn't, I knew he was great at the time. Yeah. We would go and, and run around in the fountains and play in the water when it was 95 degrees in the summer. Yeah. And then in bare feet and bare chests, we yeah. would go into the museum. And oh, that's sort so of felt funny. like we were sneaking yeah. in. And just go in and wander through the rooms and look at really great yeah. masterpieces of of Western art. Um, it's a great museum. It's one of yeah. the one, certainly one of the best for Charlie Russell paintings. Wow! And it was sort of amazed by that and, yeah. and go in there and look at these paintings that were so dynamic. Yeah, I I think of him as an American impressionist yet with cowboys and Indians yeah. in it, you know, it was just kind of strange, but his, the sense of, uh, dynamic landscapes and, uh, uh, the energy of his characters yeah. and the, the both human and animal, uh, and landscapes was just so incredible. Yeah. Uh, so I'm writing about that now. Cause I think of that as a sort of, uh, 
touchstone sure. for creativity and a sort of understanding of art. Yeah. I mean, his sense of composition is so incredible, such that every element in the painting, really every brushstroke in some ways contributes to a sense of the whole. Yeah, that and, kind of overall feeling. Yeah. How how old were you during this time? Oh, like it was five or little. six. And, and, you, and I've been back a bunch of times, so that probably informed more of that. But I, I yeah. had a sense of it then. Yeah. Um, that was and, just so incredible. And to be in this this museum, this quiet space with these cushy carpets and to wander into these rooms. Yeah. You know, that time of day, hardly anybody was in there. Yeah. It was great. So yeah. I know like retrospect is tricky, you know, and you kind of project on your memories, kind of, we like to kind of create narratives, but did you feel like, I don't know, I'm just curious if you can kind of maybe dig in a little bit more to like what you imagine your if you think there was anything kind of unique about your, your child perspective, or if you, like, what was that, that you kind of felt like something bigger or, I mean, you were with siblings. I, yeah, I have three brothers. Yeah. yeah. And I think I'm curious, like, did you feel like you were having a different experience than they were or just, all my brothers have... are creative. So cool. no, I mean, uh, you all I, I'm, I'm the of... only poet in the family, but yeah. all, all the others were musicians and we all yeah. played music. They're all trumpet players and I'm a drummer because cool. I couldn't play the trumpet. Yeah. <laughs> um, but so we all had a, a creative did you, bent. Did for you sure. talk about these experiences back then? Like, were you, were you baby philosophers? You know, I think that that, that took me until I got into high school. Yeah. I so mean, you, I had a funny experience. I think, uh, I started to think artistically as a skateboarder, which yeah. is a weird thing to interject sure. here. But we, uh, I remember a very particular moment when I was skateboarding outside my high school, we had a bank that we went up and down and did yeah. our little kick turns and tried to catch air as they yeah. used to say. Um, <laughs> they still say we, that. We, do they really they catch <laughs> they, air? Oh, you caught wicked air. That's what yeah. I mean. <laughs> Not um, wicked. Just they don't say wicked yeah. anymore. Oh, that's a, that's a totally eighties thing. Uh, sorry. Well, um, but, in Boston, uh, I think they still say they wicked. Say wicked. Wicked. Yeah. I can't say it like they do, but I was, <laughs> Uh, at the top of the bank, you know, after skating for a while and it was sunset time and it, uh, I had a, a moment where I think is my first real taste of the sublime Yeah, where my, my city was laid out before me mm. and the sun was setting. It was just this extraordinary sunset. And it just sort of, it's like, uh, a gear clicks in there mm. where, uh, your brain opens up to the sublime, mm-hmm. um, I'm trying to think the the guy that does peak experience, uh, uh, Mas- Maslow, the guy mm. that did the hierarchy of needs, okay. also talks about the notion of peak experiences and th- where you have that experience first, it sort of bursts an envelope mm. such that it allows you to have that experience again. Yeah. You sort of touch the transcendent. You know that you're looking for it now. Yeah. yeah. And I think that you know, that was sort of a moment when mm. I had an understanding of something that I'd like to be in touch with more. Yeah. And, and I suppose that's, that's the effort that I make trying to yeah. go towards art. That's something I, I, I've kind of been on a kick about recently. I, I teach a lot of young people and I don't know, I feel like I go through kind of phases as a teacher where I start, I, you know, I think hard about one or a few things kind of each year. It's just, it's just what I tend to experience. But lately I've been thinking a lot about like, kind of ownership, um, you know, and by that, I mean like a young person kind of having that like moment where they realize like they can steer a creative experience. 
Um, I, you know, I, I believe that all children are creative, but I think there is sometimes like a difference and I don't know exactly what it is or how it happens, but between, you know, children who are drawing and playing music kind of just as, as play, not that it's a just, but as play, um, versus kind of like, you know, really exploring or really kind of feeling like, you know, this sense that they're driving an experience. Um, and I like to ask artists like, you know, when did you kind of start to feel that or did it, was it, uh, was it in that moment for you or I think maybe it comes in phases too. We have to think about it. And, and, and I, I do three arts. Um, I was a drummer and still play drums. So it happened with that in various ways early, you know, even in, in junior high playing in a rock and roll band and having it feel like it took off and suddenly you hit a groove, you hit that pocket and you feel like it's happening. And certainly in jazz, I did that a lot, you know, uh, sometimes just playing with friends or sometimes, you know, playing out in a club. Um, I had a great, friend named Rob Kohler, who's a brilliant bass player, still playing in Montana, just an incredible jazz bass player. And he and I did a lot of really creative things where we, you know, set out maybe a subject matter and just play. Mm. And we got into some areas that we were, we felt like we were exploring something and pushing Mm. boundaries and didn't know where we were going, but hit these plateaus where you're like, Oh, oh, this is, this is opening up. Yeah. There's something here that I really love. Um, we had a great teacher that led us in that direction for sure. Like in high school? In in high school, junior high and high school, there was a, a monumental figure named, named Wayne Wickham, uh, who was a jazz pianist that could play anywhere. He was just mm. unbelievable. But he did a lot of work with us doing some crazy things yeah. like we're going to make a musical garden and we're going to sit on the grass and you're going to have a few instruments and we want you to make a garden. Now you might be this part of the garden and you might be this part of the garden. We did it in his backyard. And then we did it as a performance downtown in my hometown, Mm. Great Falls, Montana. And it was really strange and weird, but that, that sense of stepping over the boundary and creativity was incredible. Yeah. Um, It's almost like a permission thing. Like, of, you know, giving yourself permission to kind of like think in a different way. Um, can we go back to like, just when you're a little bit younger? So, um, can you just kind of tell me like the story of how you got started in like some of these more serious things? Cause certainly you don't, I mean, I, I assume you don't just be in a rock band. So, I mean, I'd like to know kind of like how you, how you kind of started to build these skill sets. Um, with music, all my brothers were trumpet players, and they started in a drum and bugle corps, uh, the Golden Skyliners Drum Bugle Corps, and they were all playing by 1971. Uh, my youngest, or my my brother, who's just above me, John, uh, was nine years old when he was playing in the Drum Bugle wow. Corps, yeah. and I sort of watched from afar because mm-hmm. I was, uh, mm-hmm. you know, almost two years younger than he was, and yeah. I sort of watched and got fascinated with the music for sure, mm. and then I tried to play the trumpet for a while. Uh, terribly, but I, uh, and, and, you know, a year and a half later though, I thought, well, you know, I want to do something. And so I picked up the drums because I was fascinated with the drums and the drum bugle corps. Yeah, probably eight, eight, nine. And then, then took some lessons from really the trumpet teacher, which he wasn't a great drum teacher. And then finally got a drum teacher. And, you know, 
it started to take off when I started playing drum set. And when it was in, in junior high and my, uh, my friend Rob was playing with me in the bands and then we started playing together. He'd come yeah. over to the house and we'd play. And my crazy friend, John Lindquist, who was just a, a, a hoot, you know, about two feet taller than the rest of us and, and started playing guitar. He was, he was a fan of so many different things from David Bowie to a cheap trick. Somehow in Great mm. Falls, Montana, he found out about the Sex Pistols in 1978. That's, it was crazy. I feel like those kinds of people in your life that like... You know, I mean, some of some of us are lucky to have parents that are kind of like these great mm-hmm. explorers of yeah. things. If you don't have parents or older siblings that are like that, having a friend who's like, dude, have you heard this thing? Like, do you know about this? Yeah. That can change your whole trajectory, which is why, you know, I like to start at the beginning and try to yeah. trace back, you know, where did these like little sparks start coming from? I think probably every once in a while there's a, a young person who kind of just I don't know, like it's sort of a mysterious, but I think most of the time you can kind of trace it to like this time, these people, this teacher. Um, Let me, let me say something about that too. But my mom, I can't, she's a really good watercolor painter Mm. and she did some of that, but she also pretty much raised us by ourselves Mm. with a sort of absent stepfather and my, my father who passed away very, when I was very young. But she was the most supportive person in the arts for us yeah. in anything that we wanted to do, even skateboarding. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I don't think she liked that we were going down explore. highways on skateboards, but she supported us anyway. Yeah. Uh, but in, in music and in art, and even now she, she wants me to do more watercolor painting. She actually got me started about mm. six, seven years ago, really doing it more seriously. She just supports us so much yeah. and she loves what we do. She went to every concert that she could go to, took us to lessons and paid for the lessons. And, you know, she wasn't making a lot of money and somehow yeah. she, she sacrificed she for us, uh, uh, not necessarily knowing that much about music, uh, yeah. certainly she didn't know anything about poetry when I got into poetry, but she really supports it and she loves mm. it that we do, uh, the arts in general. So. Do you remember like how she talked about it with you? You know, cause I, there's, there's the support of like paying for lessons, driving you to lessons, you know, getting your watercolors or getting kind of whatever equipment you need, getting a drum set. Um, but you know, I think some, some parents do, those things, but are very like critical of their children. Like they put them in lessons, but then they're like, you aren't, you know, you, you're not very good. You need to practice more. Um, do you, do you kind of remember like kind of those more like verbal interactions or how you knew that it was, it was that kind of full support? I don't think I ever heard her say anything critical about what we did. Uh, it, what I remember is, you know, saying, oh, that was so good. We, we, we just loved it. And the crowd loved it. And yeah, what have you. Really uh, she was just really, really supportive. And think, just that support. I think that made a big difference. Do you think she me. was like conscientious about it? Or do you think that's just kind of like, that was her nature? I think it's her nature. Yeah. Uh, frankly, my mom's a saint. Yeah. Uh, hope she hears this because yeah. she is. She's, she's been great in so many different ways in our lives and uh, always just loves us and is behind us. It was and just everything, like even the kindness. Yeah. Yeah. Pure, pure kindness. Yeah, yeah. That's really interesting. Um, okay. So what about with, with visual art and writing? So, I mean, we talked, you talked about a visual art a little, so, um, what was kind of the process of maybe getting a little bit more like serious where it kind of goes from just like, 
you know, your, your drawing as a child to maybe like, I really want to make this like better or more clear or more experimental or. There are probably three phases I could do that with in, in art, you know, in what sixth grade and into middle school, I started to uh, go at that admiration for Charlie Russell Mm. and tried to do drawings of animals. Like I tried to draw elk and deer and antelope, this sort of thing. And then did some phases where I did drawings of, of human figures too. So did you have teachers for that? uh, You know, I had some, some good teachers in great falls in the, in the public schools, this, wonderful woman named Ruth Franklin, who I didn't know what a good artist she was at the Mm, time, but mm -hmm. you know, I've since gotten to know her pretty well and she's a wonderful artist and she helped us explore the art for sure. Isn't that amazing? Like, look, I have had a few teachers like that. Interestingly enough, well, maybe I don't know that they are my music teachers, but I definitely had like, you know, an English teacher and a history teacher who very quietly really taught me to like think outside of the box. Hmm. Um, and then I look back now and think like, that was really special. You know, that person just teaching in a public school really kind of challenged the students in a way that I'm sure like still just affects me all the time. Yeah, It's, it's interesting to reflect back on those things as an adult. Um, okay. So you were talking about your phases. So the so phase, so that was Ruth. a phase. And then when I got into college, uh, you know, two things happen and this sort of, you know, starts to fork to the sides. Uh, one, I was a music major, but I was a drummer and realized I didn't want to be a band teacher. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. midway through my freshman year, I had a crisis and yeah. I, I ended up taking a poetry class by this so man named So you weren't doing Jim writing Doyle. before this? Eh, nothing to speak of. Okay. I mean, I, I wrote a sonnet in my high school English yeah. class that was pretty good. Yeah. It, it rhymed and had everything, but I didn't really it think was of like myself as a writer. Yeah. And, you know, I think it, you know, if I'm going to digress in this, that I had those teachers too in high school, one particularly Deanna Haddock, who inspired us to think as much as possible. And and I don't think I did any good writing for her necessarily, mm-hmm. but I did a lot of good thinking. Yeah. And I learned about Thoreau and she had us do these values exercises with questions yeah. at the beginning of class. And yeah. they were always really challenging. And I was like, oh, I like that. So yeah. when I got to this crisis in college, I thought, well, what did I like? in high school that mm-hmm. wasn't music. Cause mm-hmm. you know, in high school I was in the practice room all the time. Yeah. You know, practicing my rudiments or playing with my buddy. And, um, but you know, what was the other thing? Well, it was that thinking, that, thinking, that, that, yeah. that going in deeply to mm-hmm. literature. And so I took this poetry class and it was just a, uh, a survey class. So I had the Norton anthology, you know, the mm-hmm. a thousand page book that you take to the desert Island and you're going to be good. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I loved it. And the, the, poetry teacher Jim Doyle was a really interesting man. He was he was from Queens, I believe, and he so he talked with a, you with were a in Queens Montana accent. Still. I, no, this is in Colorado. I was okay. at University of Northern Colorado there. Okay. Yeah, really? I went there for the music great. school. Yeah. yeah, yeah so yeah. uh which is great. You know, yeah. I was happy to be there for that. But uh but then it turns out they have this wonderful poet. Yeah. Uh wow. and he was missing his two front teeth, didn't believe in dental uh cosmetic surgery, so he didn't get implants put in and he could spout huge passages of Milton and Blake wow. through his teeth in a Queens accent. Oh my gosh. Had a belt that had uh, tiger, tiger burning bright on yeah. it that imprinted on it. And he was, I was just fascinated with him. So I took a creative writing huh. class from him the next year 
not long after that, though, uh, I was thinking about minors. I thought about mm. philosophy, and then I got into an art history minor instead. Mm. And the art history minor had to include studio classes. So I was taking these art history classes from a, a, a man who just retired, Chip Cornell, who he was wonderful too. And and art history itself led me to understand the sort of, at least uh, somewhat of a scope of the history of mm. art from 30,000 BC to you yeah. know, the 1960s, 70s, what have you. Yeah. And completely transformational um, in lots of ways. And this this is going to be a good stepping stone because what I learned aesthetically about, and particularly probably late 19th century art and into the 20th century, uh, people from Cezanne into Paul Clay and Henri Matisse, you know, these, these mm-hmm. great modernists got me thinking about how one composes and what do you mm. do with the arrangements of objects in a painting? Yeah. And that led to uh, thinking about, well, what do you do with uh, arranging objects of language? And yeah. How, how do the various parts of the composition affect the whole yeah. and, and create that sense where you have the work of art as Cezanne said that you could hang in a museum. Yeah. Know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that's what I was, I, I ultimately tried to do with, with language. So I, I, you know, certainly that affected the way that I was drawing and yeah, painting, yeah, yeah. and I, I had some revelations there, and I got better at it uh, for sure. Uh, and even sometimes I applied that to music when it came down to it. Yeah. So they all sort of came from similar roots, I think, in terms yeah. of my philosophy. You know, I hear this from so many people that I interview. Like, it's influenced by music, and it's influenced by film or books. Um, it's it, and that's why I think you know. I think there's lots of conversations being had like between poets and between, you know, jazz musicians and between painters. And I just am so interested in like these things that kind of arch over all of our mediums, um, kind of just what's going on in your mind. Um, I do want to go back. I have, I have two questions for like pre-college. Um, were you reading a lot? I, I read, I don't think I read a lot. I considered myself a musician, so I was yeah. we listened a this lot. This is interesting. This was like, our our you know day, our weekends were yeah. driving out to the middle of nowhere and uh, hooking our cars together and listening to Charlie Parker and yeah. Miles Davis, and so we did a lot of listening yeah. and a lot of playing together. I did some reading, I mostly school related reading, and then I started to to jump off. And there were some philosophical books, bad books like you know Jonathan Livingston Seagull, you know the Richard Bach, and but then you know getting into like Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance because yeah. the philosophy started to drive us, and the way we mm. were thinking in music started to make us think in lots of different and ways. And this was like so. when you say us. You mean like you were kind of all with your music friends reading the same stuff? Yeah, yeah. I had a bunch of music friends that were all fantastic musicians, and some uh, still playing and playing yeah. a lot. But uh, and uh, you were kind of like as musicians, kind of getting into some philosophy. Yeah, but kind of thinking of it as it related back to music. Yeah, and um, then then when I got into college, that's when it really started to branch out, and I started to read poems and started to read novels yeah. more diff- uh, differently, and and read creative nonfiction. You know? Well, I think it's interesting that uh, you you as a as a, a crafter of language now, you know, the pieces that you were really influenced by were like musical language mm-hmm. and visual art composition, um, and I maybe want to ask you later how that how you feel about that as it relates to like your your poetry peers and your 
language peers, but maybe we'll, maybe we'll get there. Um, first I want to ask, I, I like to ask people about kind of that time in your, in your late teen years where you're choosing a major, you're choosing mm-hmm. what to do. And, you know, where do you kind of get that confidence to make, you know, a, um, like an impractical choice or like what's going on in your mind? Cause I, you know, I talk about a lot about where we lose creatives. And I think that that transition out of high school is a place where a lot of creatives kind of disperse into other types of professions and other types of choices. And I'm very curious about the circumstances that lead, you know, people who are doing a lot of creative stuff in high school to continue doing it in college. So what was that choice like, or were you thinking about it? If you were thinking about it, what kinds of things were weighing in on that decision? That's an interesting question. Um, I'm not sure that I can disentangle the way I live my life from the fact that I create. And I think that, you know, I, that that was happening way back in what I described before from back from skateboarding. When I got into college and I, and I started writing poems, uh, I felt like I was touching those things that mattered. Yeah. And I certainly never wanted to leave that behind. Mm. I mean, I think that the arts allow us to live our lives more deeply. Yeah. Ultimately, it for me, it creates my spirituality. Yeah. I don't really have an orthodox uh, religion, and sub, sub, subsequently, uh, creativity, the arts, music, poetry yeah. leads me towards lead me towards the things that I think are sacred. Yeah. And uh, so it's hard to disentangle that. Yeah. I think that Absolutely. discovering that poetry does that, yeah. and I, that happened in, you know, that freshman class yeah. and certainly the classes that followed with the same teacher and some others yeah. as well, that, that I knew I was in that place that, yeah. that made me feel my life more deeply. So uh, what about though, like, I mean, okay, I'm like making some assumptions maybe, but like, Moving out of state for college, that's something. That's even mm-hmm. something um, that I think requires a lot of confidence, a fair amount of conviction. Um, so you, I mean, you left to, you went to Greeley because it's a great music school. Sure. So that yeah. already is kind of, I think it's a choice that isn't just like, oh, well, I'm going to the college that's closest in proximity to where I grew up. Yeah. You know, you're you're having, you're thinking about that, yeah. I, I'm imagining. Um was anybody, you know, in your senior year of high school saying like, now, Joel, like, are you thinking about money? Are you thinking, I mean, you can't be a jazz drummer. Um, and if not, like, then I guess just not. But if so, like, how did you kind of like, you know, convince yourself like, no, not only am I going to major in music, but I'm going to I'm going to find a school that is a great music school. I'm going to move to a place where I have never, you know, have never lived where I don't know anybody. I mean, I, I, I know when you're kind of in those things, it sometimes feels like this is just what I'm doing, but I do think it's kind of critical. Um, so I'm just curious, kind of, how did you do that? Uh, I had so many responses in the midst of that. Now let's see if I have one particularly. You know, UNC was a, a school where our, our, great mentor 
Wayne Wickham had gone. Okay. So you felt we'd a, been a thinking pedigree. about that for years. Uh, there was a man named Gene Aiken who r- ran the jazz program for many years there. He was pretty brilliant and sort, mm. you know, sort of famous in the area. And they used to bring in people for jazz workshops in Great Falls. And so okay. we got to know that. You and felt like of, it was a... It was a home. Okay, who's we exactly? So, so I went down there with some of my best musician buddies, and okay. including some who were at the University of Idaho, who had done a year or two and then transferred yeah. to UNC. So that is so different. That old, is unique. Friends. You yeah. went with like your band. Well, we were to college. Yeah, it was a but. Yeah. A drummer, a great drummer friend of mine, that's Mark yeah. Rains, who is a you know great drummer in Denver yeah. now, is playing all the time. He's, he's quite brilliant. And uh, Don Barroso was my trumpet playing, mm. art creating buddy, and yeah. we all lived together for a while. And it was just such a creative environment in yeah. our households. We were drawing, we made little yeah. recording podcasts of sorts that were just kind of ridiculous fun stuff. But then we'd play music, uh, yeah. everything from pop and pans to to drums to I mean, to boxes and it was just constantly beautifully creative. unique have you thought about that i mean i have never talked to anyone else who has had an experience quite like that do you like have you thought about how kind of how kind of unique that is you know I guess it just seemed like what we should yeah. be doing. And we're, we're all so interested in doing that. And even right, I started to like do uh, improvised poems when yeah. we were doing these, these I mean, little wow. uh, recordings. It was fun. How beautiful. Like you're in Montana, which I don't picture it as being like a super, you know, like avant-garde, you know, how beautiful that you found this like little group of people who totally empowered each other to explore and try strange things. I mean, yeah, I think that is a really unique combination of things. Um, I have maybe just one more question about, about that. I really, I'm very interested in that. Cause I did want to say, what was the other thing that I wanted to say? And this, oh yeah, I oh, want to say this. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, I suppose it was daring to go to Colorado for, for college and to, to get away from Montana. There, there was a part of us that thought, well, Montana is boring and dull and this is podunk Hicksville. Mm. And that was a mistake mm. in some ways. And, and I, I do believe that, you know, uh, young people want to escape. They, yeah. they find where they are dull. I go back there and I love it. And, and certainly there are elements of, uh, you know, a, a conservative lifestyle that is not necessarily conducive to creativity sure. sometimes, sure. but man, you step towards the well, river it's wild and it's out beautiful there. and it's yeah. extraordinary. And there are really creative people and, and you just have to find them. And I, I think we were really lucky to be around them and be inspired by them and then yeah. create our own little culture. Well, I and, think there's this type of creativity in rural America. I mean, I don't, I, I was going to say rural places in general, but I, I don't know enough to say that, but uh, certainly like the rural American creativity is like alive and well. Oh, yeah. um, I, you know, I do think it's less kind of performative or like exhibitionist than like an urban creativity could be, yeah. which I think gives it kind of that like, you know, it's not going to come find you. You got to go and and look for it. But I certainly can feel that. And But I do think you're right. I think when you're young, even if you grow up in, you know, San Francisco or New York City or like a really kind of art, 
like centric place, you know, I still kind of think like at some point you've got to just, you need change. You need something mm-hmm. different. But I like that idea of kind of going back and kind of seeing with new eyes, like the power of this place that you grew up in. Yeah. I've, I've cool. done a lot of work writing and some in painting with Montana in yeah. the last 20 years. And, yeah. you know, I always go back to it because it's a source of inspiration. Yeah. And you think about, and this is something I, I thought to talk about anyway, but I think that you're, you you mentioned that childhood becomes sort of mythologized and mm-hmm. you, you create narratives, I think is what you yeah. said. Um, I think that's a good thing. I think what you're doing partially is reading the experience, uh, the content of your life in a way that develops deeper, deeper Mm -hmm. levels of meaning all the time. I think Uh, so too. Things become metaphor and you discover what they mean. And now maybe part of that is manipulative. I think that if you respond to them in an authentic way, you actually start to understand the sort of pattern of meaning that is within the content of your childhood experiences Mm -hmm. and beyond. Yeah. Patterns, you know, it's, it's, it's all of life. Just like looking back and seeing like, I've been learning this lesson since I was that five-year-old. I did have one other question about this kind of transition time with you and your friends and your kind of co-creators as you're moving, you know, to your second phase in Colorado. Were you thinking about the future or were you kind of just like, so kind of like um immersed in this like energy that you kind of like weren't having that sort of like you know fear or anxiety or even like excitement about like a farther away future like how are you thinking about it if if at all well when i when i made that transition towards uh poetry I started thinking about being a teacher. Uh, That particular teacher taught a a class on William Blake. And I remember very clearly walking uh, to class one night, walking past my favorite park in Greeley, this Glenmere Park, and and having in my mind a vision of me teaching Blake to Mm. high school students and thinking about how that might inspire them in the way that I'd been inspired by some of my teachers. And I mean, in that sense, I was thinking about the future in the, the day to day when we were sitting in my bedroom with a typewriter typing poems uh, late at night, we were, we were in the moment for sure. And just, you know, sort of living that creativity and sort of reveling in the fact that we we're all together doing this thing. Uh, It was lovely. I mean, to have a house full of really creative people and creative friends coming over. was just just so wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I think that's, I think that is, that is pretty unique. I mean, if you go to school to major in, in any kind of art, certainly you will quickly have a lot of friends who are doing that creative thing. But do you also have some friends from home who were, were doing those creative things to have that kind of comfort of like your shared history and kind of the, the comfort of your shared like current exploration? I think that's a piece that could be like very critical. You know, if you're, if you're making all brand new friends and you're all experimenting together, I think there's a risk of kind of feeling worried or like, do I belong? Like, you know, so I, I don't know. I think that's, I think that's interesting. Certainly um, there's anxiety in art in general, you know, uh, you sure. get into a, yeah. a, a 
you know, a poetry circle or a literary circle, you're, you're bound to be sometimes feel the anxiety. Yeah, and then sure. other times when you feel completely within yourself and you, you, you know who you are, you know who you are yeah. as an artist. Um, but there's always going to be that. I think that yeah. that's just sort of human psychology, I suppose. Yes. Well, and art is so subjective that it's very like, I mean, it's beautiful and terrifying. Um, how do you feel like, or, or, I mean, I just want to ask if you don't have thoughts about it, that's fine. But, you know, I sometimes, I, I tend to be very, very practical. That's kind of, that's, that's in my personality, I think. And uh, sometimes when I see people in their kind of like early 20s, late, late teens, early 20s, and they've kind of decided that they're going to be a, a professional artist, I guess in my case, I'm usually talking to musicians, maybe sometimes actors. Mm-hmm. Um, and I... I see them being like very present and very kind of like just exploring whatever. Sometimes I get a little worried and I think like, are you thinking about the future? Like, are you ticking these boxes? Are you like making sure you're setting things up? Like, you know, even just things like, are you thinking about the loans you're taking out? Um, and I, I get, I get worried. Um, but then on the other hand, I think like, maybe the very best way to like, you know, set up stability for yourself is to take those years and just not think, not worry about the future. And I just, I think I'm just curious if you have thoughts about that. Oh, I have experience with that. I can't say I've been terribly practical in my life. And, and you know, I became a teacher to, to support the art that Mm -hmm. I do, but also Mm -hmm. to, you know, I, I, have an ex-wife. I raised my children pretty much by myself and a teaching salary is not necessarily going to give us a lavish lifestyle. And frankly, I was in debt for a long time. Uh, but that was, that was partially because of, you know, family circumstances. Uh, having a teaching job allowed me to pay the bills for the most part. Uh, but also to, to write and do work. I, wrote with my students all through those years. So, and I would, you know, day to day, what do I do? I go there and talk about my art yeah. every day, pretty much. If we're talking about a book, I'm talking about language yeah. and how language works and affects the heart and the psyche. So a practical decision, I think that's a practical decision. It certainly gave me a job and it yeah. allowed me to write outside. And I was oh. very diligent about doing that. Yeah. I uh, think I just mean like, I'm just kind of specifically talking about like those years when you're just like experimenting with your friends, you're not having, you're maybe not the way I, the way I'm hearing you tell it, you're not yet kind of thinking about those. And I'm just wondering, you know, like in retrospect, like what, what, what do you feel was the value of like those years where you weren't having like fear and worry about those kind of practical things? Like, or do you recommend it? You know? Oh, I totally recommend it. I, yeah. uh, I think that when I do creative work now, it's residual of those moments yeah. of doing those, those years doing that with my friends yeah. is that I, I can pull that pocket of creativity mm. out and feel like I'm, I'm in touch with that. Yeah. Uh, uh, again, not in a nostalgic sense, but that you're yeah. sort of dipping into the stream of that because you sure. know that you've been there before. You, it, I think you're right. I mean, I think about this a lot. I made, I was very, 
I was very worried in my early 20s. I thought a lot about like, I, I logged onto Wells Fargo every night uh, and, and wrote down what I had spent, wrote down how it fitted my budget. I mean, I was a, a little obsessed. And I think I, I, didn't, I didn't spend a lot of that time just like simmering in that kind of, I mean, I was thinking like with spreadsheets and numbers from the time I was 17 years old. Um, and yeah, so I, I don't know. I feel like there's pros and cons. I feel like there are things that I've certainly like gained from having like skipped that, uh, thing that I see a lot of young people doing, but also certainly there are ways that I'm trying to catch up, um, and make up for like, you know, what that kind of, immersion that you maybe can only really get in your very early 20s mm. it's like the time to do it so i just i don't know i just like to ask about it like yeah yeah what I, are the risks of like it I've what are the benefits of it lucky enough even through my adulthood to be around pretty creative people too um mm. you know i'm still around musicians my best friend's a trumpet player a really great trumpet player um and so i'm around it all the time and then around creative young people too so mm. i feel like it's sort of an ongoing thing yeah, for you're me. always filling up that well the practicality i could use a little of yours yeah <laughs> <laughs> well that's what i'm saying though like they're just these two sides of these same coin um in a way that I think is really interesting. And I do think it's worthwhile for us to talk about like how each of us is making those decisions, um, how we're balancing kind of like, you know, practical is such like a blah kind of a word. And I don't know what the opposite end of the spectrum would be, but I, I don't know. I just think it's it's interesting to think about. Well, it's funny. when And this is a story. I don't know if it completely goes with this subject. But in terms of practicality, probably does. Um, when I was in graduate school, I was married. And I had my first daughter, Hannah, who was maybe a year or so. And I had to, I was teaching in the graduate program at the U. And... I was uh, not in the graduate group, but as part of the graduate experience, but, uh, and taking classes full time mm -hmm. and trying to write uh, mm -hmm. a master's thesis. Mm -hmm. And I, I was like, where do I put it all? And yeah. come home, I have a child, I have a, a wife and, yeah. and, you know, have practical uh, uh, duties to, yeah. to fulfill, et cetera. And it was pretty overwhelming. Yeah. And uh, I had a great teacher come through just for like a three week quick session. This woman named Van Boland, wonderful poet, brilliant Irish poet. Um, and she was so generous with her time, but I, I got to consult with her a good deal. And, and I told her about all this dilemma and, oh my God, I'm so busy and I've got this baby. Mm. And she said, well, write small poems. Yeah. Find your 15 minutes and write small poems. So like, you know, you're going to have 15 minutes, at least 15 minutes yeah. during all that craziness. So you write that poem and you get away. And if, yeah. if, if it's not good, whatever, you did something. And yeah. so that was a really important lessons in lesson in terms of dealing with the practical aspects of the everyday life mm -hmm. and then still finding that time for mm -hmm. creativity. And yeah. I, I have followed that all through up to this point. Yeah, so, that's uh, interesting. I learned. I mean, I learned that early. I certainly had those big pockets of time when I was an un undergrad. Yeah. But uh, you know, when I got to that point where 
I have a child and, yeah. and a wife and you try to do a lot. Oh, you had to yeah. adapt. But you had to find that injection. And I'll tell you what, you get a poem done, you know, before the child gets up in the morning, rest your day is butter. You know, yeah. it's, it's like I've done mm-hmm. it. I've got a poem, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. or at least a draft of a poem. And yeah. so that was a really important lesson. Yeah. Uh, and it did it put me in touch with that sacred thing that I was talking about. Yeah. Engaging with language and engaging with the mind and the heart in relation to the world. Even if it's just for that 15 minutes, yeah. there's there's something really important about it. How yeah. old were you when your daughter was born? 23. Oh, my heavens. So young. And you were in grad school? Yeah, I was in grad school. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. So can we talk about like the time in between? So you, you, you switched your major to art history or that was a minor. I had a minor in art history and and an English major. Okay. So you, you switched your major after your freshman year. Is that right? Correct. Okay. And then I'd love to know like in between, you know, that time and like maybe around the time you were finishing grad school, how did your, how did your identity start to shift into like, I'm a poet, you know, cause you had been thinking I'm a musician and maybe you feel both, but, um, what was that process like of stepping into like that kind of new sort of identity or what did you learn or what, what were kind of the things going on in those like four years? Yeah. Um, when I started taking creative writing classes, I was writing some, you know, okay poems here and there. I wrote one long poem and brought it to the workshop one afternoon and we actually had the workshop on my professor's porch that day and I remember him telling me these four lines they could be in the Norton anthology I don't know why they couldn't and I, I there, there was something that clicked into me mm-hmm. I thought I've done something yeah and that you know, that maybe started to make me shift That's that towards, like ownership thing uh, yeah that like I, I have something here yeah and I started to think of myself more seriously as a poet yeah. at that point and thinking I, maybe I have a direction there, yeah. there was like an opening of a door towards where language might lead me so I mean that was that was an experience that led me there I was still playing I played in orchestra and some jazz combos over the next several years yeah. and then gradually shifted more towards poetry um how many like serious poets were there in your program like what was your peer group like there probably about seven uh there were a bunch of writers but uh, i think in terms of poets that i admired and that i was around a lot it was probably about seven Um, how was the how was the like did you have a sense of competition or like, I kind of just am curious with such a small group, whether you felt like a pecking order. It, it's, it's funny. I think the, the group of friends that I had, we were all exploring in the way that my musicians, fr- musician friends were exploring. Mm-hmm. So we, we were excited about each other's poems and yeah. we'd get together and, and read, you know, Rilke or, you know, yeah. Blake aloud and talk about you these all things. felt like equally kind of belonging. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. In terms of my peer group, I think that probably shifted when I got into graduate school because they, I wasn't close with these people. It's yeah. a bunch of really good poets that are sort of thrust together sure. into a program and I developed friendships for sure. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't the same as maybe as the under in my yeah. undergrad experience, at least. I do feel um, curious and like, simultaneously perplexed about this kind of idea of like, where do young creatives get their confidence? Um, and I just, I don't know. I'm so curious about it. Like, 
you know, we talked about your parents, like certainly that's a big part, peers, teachers, um, you know, how, like, I, I think I, I'm inclined to ask people like, how did you deal with like criticism, rejection, judgment as a young person? And I find the longer that I'm, you know, the more I'm doing these interviews, the answer from a lot of people is like, I didn't. Like I didn't get that. I didn't have criticism, rejection, judgment until I was pretty skilled. Mm. Uh, so I think I'm just, I just am curious, like, did you feel any of those kind of pressures or did you feel like it was just a great, like positive incubator until maybe you were in grad school? That's a complicated question because I, I, I think it's hard to deal with criticism. I think that's something that we're all in the process mm-hmm. of learning to assess, mm-hmm. like tr- trying to take criticism in and do it well without having it be destructive mm-hmm. and without being defensive about it. I think that's something I'm continually working on. Mm-hmm. I hope I'm getting better at it. Um, I certainly got more criticism when I was in college or in graduate school than maybe I did when I was in my undergraduate. Yeah. Uh, I think it's something that I'm working on, honestly. It's yeah. important to do, for sure. Uh, so I wanted to reflect back on something when you were asking that question I thought about. I think it's really important for young people and, and adults just to make stuff. Yeah. I think one of the, uh, the difficulties with art is making just the best art valid, Mm -hmm. you know, that, that, Oh, you've got to be publishing in the New Yorker or, you know, you got, if you're not publishing, then what's the point of writing poems? People stop doing it or like, you know, how come you're not playing in the jazz clubs now? Why make music? Why, why play? If you're, I think it's important to be engaged in the art regardless of your level. Yeah. 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 And, uh, that, you know, as much as criticism is really great, and I think people certainly people want to improve, I think just the act of making things sure. matters. Yeah. You know? Oh, I totally agree. I do think that's a difficult position to arrive at if you aren't supported in kind of those formative years, which is why I just I'm curious about it. Like, so you you maybe weren't you didn't feel a lot of that kind of like negative icky stuff until later. Is that right? Yeah, I think when you get into a graduate program and you're surrounded by really, really smart, talented people, that there is a level of of anxiety that happens in such a situation where you start to feel maybe self-critical and and taking criticism in the midst of that. You make yourself really vulnerable, I think. So it's difficult. The opposite kind of perspective is like if you grow up in a home where your parents are very critical of you, you don't have supportive friends by the time you're in grad school. It's just like, you're ready for it. You know, you're hardened, I suppose. Yeah. Or just totally broken open where it's just like, I, I have created, you know, I've developed a resiliency over all of these years and I'm just like ready for it. But that's again, like it's, uh, you know, I think these things that we do as artists in any medium, there's so much overlap but these kind of like origin stories, I don't know. There's a lot of different stuff going on. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm endlessly curious about it. Um, is there anything else you want to say about kind of, you know, just getting your feet wet as a poet, like just kind of starting to feel like, like getting to the point where you feel like you can say 
I'm a poet. Where do you cross that line? That's an interesting question. Uh, I mean, I think it was important to get a first poem published mm-hmm. in a magazine. Publish. And, you know, that that made me feel like, oh, maybe I am really a poet. And then keeping at it. And then it took me a long time to get another poem. Before poem. grad school or during? Uh, it, was, uh, it was in my first round of grad school when I was still in Colorado. Uh, okay. 19. 19- 88 before my daughter That's when was I was born. born. Is that right? Yeah, oh, God. Yeah, yeah, that was the first year that I got a poem published in the Sonora Review. I can't remember what the poem was. Anymore. So you Probably got a it master's degree. And then an MFA. In what? Mas- the master's was just English. In Colorado. In Col- and University then, of Northern Colorado, yeah. And then you went somewhere else? Then for- I came here for the MFA at the University of Utah. Okay. Yeah, I, I found out that Mark Strand was teaching here. And Mark Strand was a now was a Pulitzer Prize winning poet and became the poet laureate of the United States. And it was just, just a brilliant poet. I'd found it, one of his uh, books in the library at UNC and was reading it and I loved it. And then I saw a pamphlet that had University of here, Utah faculty. Yeah. I'm like, Are you kidding? You me? followed Why your is he in here. Salt Lake yeah. City? <laughs> and, and so, yeah, that's how Why I was he in here. Salt Lake City? You know, they offered him a good job, mm-hmm. you know, for, I yeah. think he was here for nine or 10 years. It wasn't a long time that he was here, but, uh, and, and then went to Johns Hopkins. So, mm-hmm. I mean, the, he's, he, he's such a sought after poet. Uh, he, he disappeared pretty yeah. soon after. In fact, well, I think when I was still there, he left. So. Is there anything else you'd like to share about the state of your kind of like, you know, creative, mental, emotional, philosophical development, but, like between, you know, whenever we left off and when you finished your last grad school. I think if, I, if I'm talking about Strand, Mark Strand, something I learned that he ultimately sort of disrupted me with was uh, the process of listening to a poem and allowing a poem to direct you to its meaning. Mm. So the, the, the experience where I'd written a poem, what was it called? The Addict in Zurich somewhere so we're back in my my collections uh and he read through it and he said oh i really i like these lines here i think the poem starts here well it's hmm. he he said the lines that were in the middle of the poem said cut the cut the first part out and start here and i'm hmm. like but but what about those first lines i yeah. like what they're saying i like what it means and he says first of all forget meaning if it sounds right it is right get to the bottom of the poem and then decide what it means. Yeah. I was like, what do you, what do you mean by that? Well, I, I grappled mm. with that for a long, long time. Yeah. And, uh, and, and wrote some really terrible poems as a result, just like letting sound dictate meaning, which mm-hmm. is kind of what I do now. However, I, I think that sound I, like the consonants. Yeah. The sounds, yeah, the, actual, the rhythms, the, yeah. the, the language moving forward. That's how I write lyrics. Yeah, yeah. I think about it like vowels, consonants. Sure, yeah. The meaning is like, we'll figure it out as we go. So, so what I, what I came to, I think with that, and that's exactly what I'm thinking about is like, well, what is it? What does it sound like? And what, what's that pulse that you feel mm-hmm. in your head? Mm-hmm. I think we go back to jazz. It's sort of like, 
you're improvising and you're listening to the other musicians, but that music is in your head. And what you're doing is trying to follow uh, where the musical ideas as they move in that Mm -hmm. direction. And what I first started with were poems that were just sort of nonsensical and ridiculous. But what I, what I discovered is that if you really listen to that, it it will lead you to say something that does matter, but it's something that you didn't know mattered before. So that, that sense and part of what strand I think was trying to get me to, to understand myself was that, uh, the process of writing is leading you to say something that is surprising to you, yeah. but that also matters to you. Yeah. That somehow the uh, something happens in your brain that generates the language that pushes through the questions that you're asking, mm-hmm. uh, not to give a definitive answer necessarily, yeah. but to lead you into some sort of wilderness that is, is new yeah. and interesting and says something mm-hmm. that matters. I'm yeah. so with you on that. That is exactly how I feel. And when I work with my students on songwriting and lyrics, and it's not the same, but I do think you know, lyrics and poetry are, they're definitely, there's a relationship there. Um, And when I work with my students and they say like, well, I want this song to be about, I tell them kind of that same thing of like, deciding at the beginning is awfully tricky, you know? Um, But I think you're right. You know, you kind of like, you start real broad, just some flavors, just picking at some things. And then as you go, kind of like, oh, but yeah, I think it's important that there's like some, some meaning at the end, but yeah, I definitely feel the same way. Kind of write, like discover as I go. Yeah, um, yeah. I think that that's a necessity, and I, I uh, teach that in the opening lessons in my creative writing classes. You know, writing is an act of discovery. If you're not discovering something, you're going to write something that's sort of dead. Yeah, you know that it, it doesn't make any movement or it feels so manipulative that the reader can't trust it. Yes, and I think that if the writer is in the process of discovering that thing, the reader will, will trust it and the reader will discover in the process as well. Yeah. I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah, Otherwise, like you said, it's, it's kind of dead. It's already, or it's, it's pushy. Yeah. It's preachy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's a, there's a very, very fine line there. I fully agree. Um, okay. So let's talk about, we, that's, that's phase one. So I, I like to spend the least amount of time usually in the middle, um, which is like your profession. So let's talk about like finishing grad school and going into like trans- transitioning into like, okay, I'm not a student anymore. This is my profession. Um, a good way to kind of maybe start unless like we, you can kind of go two ways. You can either go like chronologically if you feel like that makes sense and that's like, you know, a good, a good way for you do that. Um, another way you can do it is start with a list of like all the ways you've made money. Oh, this is going to be a short discussion because there's not a lot of ways to make money in poetry. And, and I'm sure that there are others that, that could do better with that. Uh, I can't say I'm great at the business aspect of poetry. That's a start. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I did make money in my first book of, of poems, uh, was taken by a, a press, the White Pine Press Poetry Prize. Okay, so, so a book of poems. So that's... I got a book of poems, and I, I think I got $1,000 for the prize, and then I got some money from, from some of the books. But I can't say I made a whole lot of money. I did not make a living on that. What it did allow me to do is do like workshops or poetry readings, and okay. I did get invited to do 
I think I made uh, more money in the first two poetry readings that I did on the book. Mm. So that was useful and workshops. And that's in some ways that book itself was a springboard for a lot of uh, different activities that I did where I made Different things are kind of injunction in conjunction, uh, workshops and readings. Are those kind of one thing or are those two things? It depends. It depends. Like I, I did one at SUU, you know, probably 15 years ago where I did both, where I, where I did workshop with the class and mm. went into a classroom. I did a discussion about myth and poetry and I did a poetry reading. Okay. So it depends on. So kind reading. of freelance mm-hmm. and then teaching and teaching, of course. Yeah. And that's, I suppose that's been at the heart of the way in which I make money. Have you done like teaching outside of like academia? Like are, have you, have you, have you exclusively taught like with a, university um i've i've done poetry workshops like the uh sawtooth writers conference okay but they were students yeah uh, I, I haven't done anything like you know like teaching in the prisons or what have you i, well, have I think friends i'm that have done wondering such more things. if you've done like you know like private lessons or like coaching or kind of where it's sort of outs outside of a university but more of like a, a like an a, apprentice kind of a situation or something not really uh, i have former students who I meet with and talk about their poems. I wouldn't call it private lessons and I don't make money from it. Yeah. Okay. I made money when they were in school, but not now. Uh, So that's more of circumstances of having students who I really admired and who got better and continued to write and, and want to get together with me and talk about poems that they're writing now. And then that's that joy. That's that, that's that sublime thing. I'm sure. I mean, I know I feel that way when, it's really a joy to work with students who are kind of discovering that and to be there and see it. Yeah. Um, yeah to see them continue after the high school experience. Yeah. I just love that. And you feel like you've done something and you know, not all the students you touch, I think end up doing something like that after, yeah. uh, Sometimes you touch them and they just continue to read or they think in creative ways or maybe they do another art or a science. Yeah, I have had a great student when I taught at Copper Hills who's uh, two different ones that became neuroscientists. Yeah. And yet they still look back yeah. and think they see of the that creative as an writing class part of as their really important formation. Their, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I don't make money off of that though. So that's okay. not, I don't know if it's professional. I, uh, I think those things are... You know, I talk sometimes with people about like, you know, you, you have your, your like capital A art, which is like your poems. And then you have like this whole, you know, network of things that kind of feed into it. And some of the ways, like you have things that make money that maybe like are more or less creative, uh, that like literally, you know, like support financially your most creative endeavors. And then you have like those more kind of social, um, those interactive kinds of things that maybe aren't money, but they do support your creativity by kind of continuing to fill up that well. So, Mm. I mean, time is a resource and money is a resource, uh, in both directions. So, you know, kind of thinking about that, like investment in investment out, yeah. Um, I'd be remiss kind of... if I didn't speak to uh, the reading series and what I've done in the literary community. And that it's, I don't make money from it. I am a volunteer, but I've been running a reading series for 18 years in Salt Lake City. Mm-hmm. And it has per year 28 different nights of readers, usually two a night, uh, that bring in. We've, we've had 
Mark Strand. And we've yeah. had, uh, 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 now I, I'm losing my names, but Harold Carr has yeah. played there and read poems. Uh, you know, Pulitzer Prize winners to local poets. We have high school poets read there. Yeah. We have university professors. Lance Larson uh, from BYU has come. Uh, Jacqueline Oshiro uh, from the University of Utah. Some of the, some of the most wonderful poets in the country yeah. have read there that's part of my professional life too and feeds me in so many different ways. Certainly it's difficult to put on 28 readings a year. Sure. But, and, and, you know, during the school year, particularly when I'm teaching five classes in a day and going out at night and hosting, it's, it's difficult, but I know the value of that series to the community. Um, it does allow most of the time our, University of Utah professors don't necessarily read at the University of Utah. Mm -hmm. So this gives Mm. a venue for some of the wonderful local literary figures to read in public and uh, as well as people who are coming through Mm -hmm. and young up and coming poets and sometimes musicians like Harold. So, yeah, that's, I totally agree with you. Like those kinds of things absolutely are like, you know, uh, crucial to like your overall kind of sustainability in your profession, regardless of whether it's like dollars, um, that they're resources, you know, and they, they, that you, you, you give resources to them and then they give back. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I learn every time I go down there, I can be exhausted from a day at school and, you know, think, Oh my gosh, I have to go to the library and I'm tired. And then I get there and some wonderful reader, yeah just blows your mind and you you, know, you come yeah. away thinking, ah, that's why I do it. That's why I do it. I get inspired yeah. and then other people in that room get inspired. So I feel like I'm, I've done something and yeah. you know, hopefully giving to the community, which that matters to me. Um, is there anything you'd like to talk about, you know, kind of either nuts and bolts wise or, or maybe more culturally about like, you know, things like what's it like to try to get things published if you want to go kind of more nuts and bolts? How does it feel? Um, or maybe also like the state of the profession or both. Let's, let's talk about well, two pretty different, uh, questions. Sure. With, with publishing again, I, I don't think that I'm good at it. Uh, when I am good at it, I am sending out poems all the time. And that, that would mean these days you do it online. Almost yeah. every literary magazine, whether it's print or online, has an online submission uh, process. So uh, I can get online and, and send 20 poems in an afternoon and try to get those published. And it's really a lot easier. Back in the old days, we, <laughs> we would get together and we'd, yeah. we'd you know, stuff an envelope filled with five poems and yeah. put stamps on the uh, uh the envelope to send back and the, and the envelope. So you'd end up spending a bunch of money and a bunch of time and printing those pages Mm -hmm. and sending them out and then hope for something in the mail that was, you know, an acceptance. The process of it, I, you, we talked earlier about getting discouraged. It's, it can be discouraging because you get rejected more often than not by far. It's probably about 85% of the time you get rejected and as a poet, you you have to be resilient. Poet, and now I'm doing essays, so um, a little bit of both. But you, you have to be resilient if you believe in the work. When it comes back, yeah, 
you send it again. Yeah. And I did that when I, when I was doing it with envelopes and I do it now with emails. Do you feel like that resiliency is something that you just kind of, you just, you do it? Or do you feel like you've had to learn how to, how to be resilient? I'd say I am learning to be resilient. Yeah. I still, you know, it's still upsetting when you get an essay back and you think, oh, I've written this wonderful essay and really somebody needs to take it. And you get it back and you get a form note yeah. on the email. Uh, so I'm still learning the resilience. If I believe in the essay, I send it back. Yeah. I guess how, that's the belief. How you know. does that feel? Like, I mean, I know it's so abstract, but like, how does it feel? Like, what is that experience like in, in your body, in your mind of like, believing in your work in that way like how do you know like what is it what does it feel like I think that if I've gotten better at it it's this when I get that rejection I feel I I I fall down in my mood for one second yeah and then I think oh gotta send it somewhere else yeah and I move on this I think it used to be when I'd get a rejection uh, probably as far back as when I got them in the mail it would make me feel like, oh man, I, I guess those poems aren't good. Yeah. Maybe I shouldn't send them back. I think now I've gotten to the point where I feel like I make pretty good work, and I'm I'm pretty confident that I do. And you know, sometimes they're really good poems, and if I get a rejection on them, I know I just need to find the editor that's yeah. going to read them at the right time. Got to find the right audience. Eventually get taken, and, it, yeah. and it's you know that's a lot of work. Yeah, uh, and. You know, it does take a lot of time. I don't always have a lot of time. I think that if I have a great fault, it is I'd rather write new work than deal with the old work and send it out. I think that's very relatable. Yeah. I don't don't think you're alone in that at all. Yeah. I like Um, the feeling of having new poems or new essays. I like that that feeling of of the process. That's that's consistent with like your earlier, like what you said about kind of your formative years. You're, you're you're always going to kind of go to like that creative place. That's the most important place. Yeah. 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 There, yeah there's something about it. You you just feel it in your body that, that oh, I've made something. Yeah. I, I, I like that feeling. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Lord, Lord knows I, I have thousands of poems in my computer that probably should be read by someone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and not just me. Um, do you want to talk about the state of your profession? And, and I think, you know, this could be like, you know, I I feel with jazz and I'm sure it happens in poetry too. Like, is it a dying art? I mean, it's a question that we're probably all sick of answering, but also have thoughts about. You could talk about that, you know, just in terms of like public perception, public value, or like, how do you feel about the community in your profession? How do you feel about the state of like, poets to poets and writers to writers and kind of how it feels culturally to be in that profession at this time. Yeah. I'm going to respond to the first part of that. Um, You know, you get to a YouTube and maybe it's a fantastic musician from, you know, Michael Brecker from 1980 and you read the comments and somebody, somebody inevitably says, they're just not making music like this anymore. Mm. Where's the great music? How come nobody's mm-hmm. right? That's just such it's, nonsense. And I, is. this is not to disparage Michael Brecker. I love Michael Brecker. But to say something like that, I think is ludicrous. It's deeply ignorant. We're, we're humans that are responding to a very complicated, beautiful, yeah. strange existence you think that there aren't smart humans making great music? Yeah. 
that's just crazy. It's crazy. And the same thing with with poetry. Uh, well, I'll address the, how the value of that in a minute. Yeah, but how pu- the, you're, public we're reception. Always, I mean, language is such a, a phenomenal mm-hmm. vehicle, mm-hmm. and so and always flexible, changing. and yeah. and, and you, you can't put the same sentence together twice, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, I suppose you could, but why would you? There, it's so yeah. flexible, like music and like art. It it's ludicrous to think that we're not in a golden age every time humans step out the door. Because yeah. I, I, I think that our response has to be something that is new and fresh and exciting. Mm-hmm. There that's are always why people geniuses. get confused about the pa- I mean, I think as time changes, culture changes, values change. And, and I think creativity is happening in, in response to those things and also driving those things. But certainly like there's a correlation and there's a relation. And, uh, when people say, you know, like they don't make music like this anymore, nobody writes like this anymore. They just, they're, they're stuck in like, you know, kind of this old value system, you know, if they want to be there, fine. Uh, but yeah, I think, I think that's why that happens. I kind of want to say good. It's a sure. good thing they don't write things like that anymore because that was that time. That's what, and that's what I'm I saying, value yeah. that. I I love a, a, a broad, broad range of music. It was immediate then. Poetry. And I go back to that. I love I yeah. love reading Shakespeare and Dunn, but I, I want to read Terence Hayes and Ada Limon too. And and you know the some of the wonderful poets that are writing today. They're responding in a different era with different types of language right. and different responses yeah. to the world. That's exciting. I don't want Ada Limon to write like Shakespeare. Yeah. That's terrible. Yeah. That would be terrible. <laughs> yeah. What a waste of time. Yeah. Right? Um, yeah. So, yeah, I, I think the state of art is always going to be good if yeah. humans are responding to the world. Sure. And, uh, and so, and that, I think that's the case with poetry. There are some really wonderful poets writing today, sure. including in this state, including sure. Paisley Rechtal, our poet laureate at the University of mm. Utah, and Lance Larson, Catherine Coles, uh, Lance Olson, who's a fiction writer for the U, mm. Melanie Ray Tone is one of the most brilliant fiction writers around, and her, her newest works are fantastic. So, I think we celebrate what humans are doing mm-hmm. at I fully all the agree. Moments, including yeah. the present. How do you feel about like how artists and maybe poets in particular are valued by our culture? You value it, but maybe the public at large, do you have thoughts about, about that? Yeah. Uh, I think people don't read poetry. I think a lot of people who become poets or take creative writing classes and write poetry, read poetry. Mm-hmm. I think the general population is afraid of poetry because mm-hmm. uh, they think it's difficult. And some poetry is difficult. There, there's no doubt there are poets that are hard to read. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I thrust a Jory Graham poem at somebody that doesn't read poetry, they're probably not going to have a great experience. Yeah. Uh, I think that in schools, when when young students are in the classroom, they should have experience with a wide variety of poems to alleviate that fear. I think, you know, it's like getting a baby Mm. into water. 
You yeah. want to get them into that water early yeah. so they can feel comfortable yeah. that they can deal with the water. And with poetry, that has to happen, mm-hmm. I think, at a pretty young age, too. Because the more experience, yeah. the less fear there's Well, that's be. true with everything. It's true with ideas. It's true with any sort of literature, visual art, even just... Uh, you know, like fashion, you know, like, I mean, you're, when you're young, you don't have preferences yet, you know, or maybe there's some like genetic components to those things, but, but I think mostly you're kind of a blank slate. So, you know, getting exposure to as many types of things when you're young and you're kind of like, just curious, um, you know, will have a dramatic effect on what you're kind of capable of like receiving and processing as an older person, so yeah, I, I think you're right that like poetry has kind of like a a stigma of being like this is for intellectuals or this is for in the same way that, you know, classical music has or jazz now I think is kind of in that group too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I I would think the same is is true of jazz in that so many people just don't have the experience with it. Yeah. And you know, the more experience you have, probably the more jazz you're going to like. You may not like mm-hmm. all of it. You Absolutely. may not go in and listen to Ornette Coleman, but yeah. you know, you, sure. you might like to listen to Miles Davis. You know? Well, and maybe this like goes without saying, but I, I don't think it does. I mean, it, surely it goes without saying between the two of us. But when you said, you know, like some poetry is difficult, like I think so. And you know, certainly like Ornette Coleman is difficult. Yeah. Uh, I think the thing that people miss is like, that's the point. It's part of it. You know, like it's not supposed to be something that you like solve. Like the difficulty is like the thing, you know, that's the experience. And it's, you know, I think sometimes people want to project like, you know, a certain value system onto like a a subgenre that just doesn't belong. It was never meant to be there. Uh, you're not supposed to like understand it in the same way that you maybe understand like a sonnet or something that's like very structured. Well, and the, and the fact is that they're not equations. That's what I'm saying. A sonnet is not an equation. It's as formal as they are in their 14 lines. You don't necessarily have to have the answer when you get done with it. Right. You know, part of what poetry does is gives you an experience both in terms of how you respond to the imagery and maybe the narrative and, and the sound of the language, the rhythm of it. So to have an experience and not come away saying, what so does what's it mean? the point? What's the moral? What's yeah. the theme of the totally. poem? And, you know, c- certainly we, we try to teach students to respond to it in such a way, and I, even I do. But, like, there's not necessarily one right answer. Right? Sometimes Absolutely. a student will say, well, uh, here's my statement of theme. Is that right? I'm like, it I don't know. Can you talk about how yes. that fits with what you experienced? That's totally what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. Like, there's this, like, supposition that you're supposed to, like, be able to say like, what is it for, you know? And like, just, just as often as maybe the composer or the poet or, you know, the painter or whoever maybe does have something that they kind of like, you know, I, I sometimes leave like breadcrumbs and, you know, I, I can sort of fantasize about a moment where someone says like, I noticed this Mm -hmm. and I'm like, Oh, I'm so glad that you noticed that I left that there for people who like me, (laughs) you know, I I left those things. Um, but certainly I, even I don't feel like that's the only way to hear something or read something. 
even about my own work, it's like, you know, so much more, I think about an experience. So I'm just saying, even, even if the creator of the thing maybe does have like a, I hope, I hope someone realizes this. Surely even that person doesn't feel like that's the point. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, I do think I, I, I don't like poems to be riddles per se. Mm. Like I don't want, if they're, I don't like it when somebody says, well, you know what it means or something like that. I, I, I do want the author to respond to the audience in a way that gives them the openings. I think Mm. that, that good poems have windows that allow you to enter into the poem Mm -hmm. in a way that engages you. And I think that that's, that's a, a a writer's responsibility Mm. in some ways. I, the, the notion that I'm going to write this and then the reader can decide. I don't necessarily like that Mm. either. I feel Mm. like that's, that's not really responding to your artistic responsibilities Mm. Mm -hmm. in ways. And at the same time, I think that, uh, you know, they have to be discovering in the process of writing the poem, Mm. but that, that notion that I'm going to write something that's really obscure just for the sake of obscure, you write something that's difficult because what you're writing about is a difficult thing. Right. And, and you're not doing it to be opaque and say, yeah, I'm writing poems and poems are opaque. To me, that seems ridiculous. Yeah. What we're trying to do is to, in, like in the process of writing the poem or whatever your subject yeah. matter is, you're trying to ask questions. Yeah. Like ref- do that reflect the truth of how complicated the thing is. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you let language do that. So, I mean, it's certainly that maybe I'm I'm saying two things at once, but I I think that that's true. I'm You've got to you. be able to do that. I, I don't like the notion that well, I'm going to write a private poem. I just wrote it for myself. But will you read it? Yeah. It's like, well, if it's private, then. Keep sure. it private, but if it's something that that you want to give to the public, then there has to be openings so that the public can enter in mm-hmm. and engage in a way that's mm-hmm. as deep as your process. Yeah. 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 That makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I feel the same way. Okay. Um, let's move into this last little bit and just kind of finish up. Um, I, I'm obsessed with like identity and also, you know, maybe, maybe specifically in the ways that like yourself gets into your art. We've just mm-hmm. been talking about this kind of already. Yeah. And maybe also, you know, just any anything related to like, are there parts of yourself that you don't put in your art? Are there parts of yourself that you can only access through art and that you don't find, you know, you, you, you can't kind of express in any other way? Uh, do you feel like you need boundaries? Uh, what does your art make you feel about who you are? Any, do you have any thoughts about kind of art and identity in any direction? Uh, I would say that I write poems that sometimes are personal. Uh, so I, anything is subject matter that I will write about if it is something that gets in my head and moves me in some way. So I don't, I don't hold back. I cross boundaries, I'm sure. I've written some very personal poems. I wrote about my last divorce heavily and my first divorce for that matter. Um, I'm sorry, my, my phone is reading. It's okay. Your phone's allowed to make sounds. So (laughs) I don't want it to though. So you, Uh, but, but I guess I think 
everything is metaphor. And I think that the, the personal becomes metaphor that reads more deeply if it's something that matters to you, that if, if it strikes you such that it is, it is in your heart and your head in such a profound way, then it, if you write it well, then it will resonate with someone else. The ability to cross boundaries allows you to go into those levels of meaning that matter to you. Mm -hmm. Those are going to be places, whether it's loss, death, difficulty, sadness, uh, joy. Those are the things that uh, leave us with scars, sometimes pleasurable scars. Mm -hmm. And those are moments that can be read. Those are moments that can be probed with language in such a way that they break through to things that matter. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. So yeah, n- n- no boundaries. I'll, I'll, I'm willing to write about everything. I'm not always willing to share those poems. Yeah. Uh, often I am though, because again, I think that you, you go towards something that really strikes you, and sure. you'll, you'll find something to say that matters. I think not necessarily just to you. So it's not a matter of you know. Let me tell you my life story. When, when I when hopefully the good poems. Yeah tell you well, they, maybe that life story but they there's there's something that you've learned in in looking yeah. at that life story that matters beyond yeah uh, they kind of maybe like capture or illuminate some humanity that's gonna be so okay so you're you you aren't boundaried out of yourself into your work what about out of yourself into not work like mm-hmm. is there a difference between like how kind of vulnerable and open and exposed and uh, generous you are to your poems and your writing uh, uh is there a difference between maybe how you are with as a friend as a parent as a teacher i think i'm a really goofy person i think i'm i i tell jokes constantly in the classroom i I have about three funny poems in the thousands of poems I've ever written. And that's, that's kind of yeah. an interesting thing. Yeah, it doesn't, so, I, I have no idea. It yeah. just doesn't translate. When I turn yeah. on my poetic voice, I don't yeah. have the humor. And there are really so funny, great poets that I admire, like Tony Hoagland or Dean Young. These, I mean, they're funny poets. Yeah. I just Is that something you've it. kind of like thought about it all? Like, you know, kind of like who is who is Joel the poet and who is Joel funny? You know, like, I mean, there doesn't have to be an answer. I just, I don't I'm know curious if I have an answer. It. I mean, I, I do think that that's a, that's a boundary and do Lord you, knows I have tried because I think I should be able to do the funny poem. This is uh, a so, terrible question, but okay. do you feel like there's one that's more true? Oh, in terms of my identity? Yeah. No, no, they're both true. They're both authentic yeah. for sure. Uh, it's just, a, it's like I, in my art, it just doesn't Do you feel like, work. And again, this is like such a leading question, but I'm asking it anyway. Go ahead. So humor, I think sometimes humor, humor can be like a bit of a filter. I, I'm curious if, if, if you think like I can, I can sort of theorize a few possibilities. Do you feel like humor is like, you know, kind of that classic, like defense sort of filter? Like it's, um, you know, for lack of a better word, like maybe it's kind of an armor or, or a filter, um, in your, in your real life and your not that your work isn't real, but you know what I mean? In your kind no, of day-to-day no, life. Yeah, um, or I could also imagine that like the fil- the humor is like something that it, rather than being like a defense or something is kind of more personal and more, uh, tender 
And that maybe like that could be a reason that it doesn't like go into like, you know, I'm just kind of wondering which one filters on top of the other or if it's just not. Well, you know, I think that the humor is just play. I'm in the classroom. I'm very playful. And my, my brain gets going and I hear a joke in my head and I just say it and I'm just playing. And I don't, I don't think it's defensive. Neither one is protecting the other mode that I get into. I love puns. And if I hear a pun coming, I say the pun and try to set it up. So it's ridiculous and try to time it. So it's ridiculous. And I, I love that aspect. I hope that my classroom is fun and why that doesn't translate into a poem, I don't yeah. know. I don't know. It's a it's a it's a mystery to me. Yeah, as, I just, as I I think just like it to should. ask about it. But I hope yeah, no, it's a great it's a great question. And I and I have thought about it. I mean I have I have one poem called The Secrets of Refrigeration that at least started with something funny, which I thought was funny. Mm. In what was the Cedro Willie Washington? I went went uh, past a church that had a sign that said, if God had a refrigerator, you'd be on it. On it? Yeah. So like a photo, like, cause, yeah. cause we put our photos of our children on the, yeah. po- oh, I was like, well, that's just okay. such a ridiculous statement. Yeah. So I wrote a whole poem about that, about God's refrigerator in general, yeah. which was, I thought was pretty funny but then the poem turns out to be serious i suppose there are funny moments in it but i thought that was hilarious so that's one of maybe three so So who knows what about like um you know i think identity is something that we kind of project out and it's also certainly something like it's very porous um how do, do you feel at all affected by like other people's kind of projections of you know, like you're a poet. Like, do you ever feel kind of anything about like? You mean like people who don't don't read poetry? Yeah, or people people who don't know you. You know, or like does does that kind of like experience of like living in the world where you say like I'm Joel, I'm a poet, and how people reflect that back? Like, does that does that like cycle back and inform? anything about how you kind of like self-reference it, it it sort of makes me feel like a pet <laughs> like mm-hmm. oh, oh you're a poet it's like, it's like oh isn't that cute yeah it it's feels like kind a, of condescending on the head I, 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 you know in some ways i feel that because i think a lot of people don't read poetry oh, and have- i have good friends who are who are uh really smart people who play i play ultimate frisbee so i've got a, a friend who i play ultimate frisbee with me and and he sort of you know he introduces me and and here's joel the poet. Yeah. And it, it does. It feels, it feels like, a you know, let me scratch you under the ears, you know. Does, um, do you ever get the opposite of like people projecting like a, a depth and a wisdom on you that you feel kind of like this also isn't the truth of like who I am? I'm not sure I experienced that. That's I not the, I, I, maybe, maybe some people feel that way. I, I have not like it's not the vibe you're giving actual off. perception of that happening. Yeah. Uh, Maybe, maybe again, I, 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 I could be kind of goofy and, and, yeah. uh, hopefully not off putting in my everyday yeah. life. But, uh, you know, um, I think when I start talking about poetry, I probably turn on a switch where that changes. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, if I'm talking to somebody who doesn't read a whole lot of poetry, I hope I, uh, present it in such a way that might make them yeah. think, Oh, well, I, I could read poems if yeah. I, if I approached it like that. So I think we talk a lot in 
our professions about like authenticity. I think it's like mm-hmm. something, something that's, and I don't know if it's always been true or if it's kind of like just in the zeitgeist right now, but mm-hmm. you know, I think it's an interesting question because like this idea of self is so like impermanent. Uh, and yeah. you know, your self changes based on like who you're around your self changes based on like what you're trying um, your self changes based on who your children are, um, where you live. Uh, so I just, yeah, I like to kind of ask like, just what's, what's the kind of like evolution of that. And, um, is there anything else that you want to say about like now just as kind of big, the origins of creativity, your kind of process, you know, of kind of arriving at who you feel like you are today, art in general, but as we're kind of wrapping up, is there anything you feel is kind of unsaid? <laughs> I, I, I like the way you ask questions because there are about nine different things I could say. But that was great. I try There's to a lot do it on go, purpose. Oh, that's to kind a lot. Of... Yeah, it's like, oh, okay, what am I going to respond to? When you started talking about the self, it, I mean, that's just such interesting discussion in general. And I think that uh, part of one of the things that I do in poems is try to think about the process of being a self and how do you describe the way self interacts with the world and the sort of uh, mm. permeable membrane of the senses right. that that in makes the world interact uh, with other, which yeah. is all other things besides the self. And how uh, ultimately that interaction is, how does that take place? Yeah. And I, so I, I think I have quite a few poems where I'm I'm dealing with that uh, you know that boundary that is crossed over yeah. that is so fluid and the transformation of self and the process of the self in time um i, I made an uh, aphorism for the students you know uh if you're writing a poem include time and death if you have time and death and being you'll probably write a pretty interesting yeah. poem i think that that's true we are uh it's a strange existence that we're in yeah, and I think that uh, I hope poetry reminds us of that. Yeah, that it, it is is meant to move us towards what what Ed Hirsch calls uh, what what does he call it now? I can't I can't remember the phrase. Uh, radical being, I think, mm. is the phrase. Mm. Ra- that is that it is strange to be in our bodies. It yeah. is strange to be in the world, and particularly with the body moving through time and mm-hmm. moving through age through and to age. have the interaction yeah. of, of the mind in in the world. Mm-hmm. It's an extraordinary thing. And I think that art is partially an exploration of of that that radical strangeness, yeah. right? Of I our think lives. So, too. Um, so yeah, the self I think is is a really important thing. Uh, you know, some people think of Walt Whitman's The Song of Myself as a sort of solipsistic uh, enterprise. And, you know, my my take on, on Whitman is completely different. It's not solipsistic. What he's doing is thinking about our question. What, what is what is the self and mm-hmm. how does the self interact? He celebrates the self because the self is in the body interacting with the world and interacting at that point with, you know, this nascent democracy Mm. and the, 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 the nation growing and the, the, this beautiful, uh, uh, landscape that we're involved in and all the different people, the multitudes, he calls Mm -hmm. them. 
it's fascinating. Yeah. Of course he's going to celebrate the self because that, that is our touchstone with the world. Yeah. It is, it is the point at which we interact with the entire universe. Yeah. Right. So that's fascinating. And, Absolutely. and I think that's what art is doing. You know, yeah. Whitman was doing it. I'm doing it in my small way in the 21st century with shopping malls and, and, you know, talking cars, you know, yeah. <laughs> cars that tell us where we're, we're going. We're all doing it. And that, that's, I think that goes back to like this thought of like, oh, they don't make music like they did back then. And it's like, well, yes, because now we have the internet and now we have, you know, I mean, as everything changes, the way that kind of our self feels like, you know, empowered or simultaneously like so small and fragile, you know, exposed more of a voice than ever, less than less of a voice than ever, you know, of course we're going to kind of respond to and interact with that in totally new ways, which like you said, is just like the point. Yeah. It's kind yeah. of like, what else can we do? What else yeah. is going to happen? Of course. We're, and, and, and you're going to do interesting things as a result mm. of the shifts in technology and shifts in the landscape, the shift in politics, in whatever language. it's going to be. Yeah. All and, those and things. Language. It's, it's, it's transforming all the time yeah. and because the self is inside the body moving through time and moving through the landscape and the particular point in the landscape that you're in. And all of that informs us. Yeah. I think a, a lot about place and I, you know, my, my place is the great salt lake. I think the great salt lake is extraordinary. It's beautiful. It's strange. It's uncomfortable sometimes, but it's, it, that's mm. the place that I go and it informs so much of who I am and mm. just the, the salt lake Valley in general you go out your door in the morning and you look up at the Wasatch front and you see Mount Olympus and the Twin Peaks and what have you. And, and here you're looking at temp or whatever yeah. you write that that is in, in your consciousness. It is at the heart of the self. Mm -hmm. And, and so of course that's going to enter into your art yeah, because it informs it. It is imprinted mm -hmm. daily, freshly yeah. on your mind. Absolutely. So yeah, your your interactions in time and place, yeah. I think, matter a lot, and as well as the vulnerability of the self and the sort. Of, I think if we go back to our questions about creativity, I think creativity partially has uh, at its heart making oneself vulnerable to the experience of our lives, to to walking out and looking at those mountains and and you know looking out yeah. my window at that bird feeder and watching those goldfinch yeah. picking at the thistle seeds every day and having having that experience and having that vulnerability as well as the sensibility that you if if you read experience there's something underneath it that's being said too there's this other mm -hmm. song that's going on beneath that and i think that matters so vulnerability uh, Wallace Stevens says one reads poems with one's nerves. And mm. my, my step is to say, well, you, you also experience the world with your nerves. And yeah. that's sort of an opening up and feeling that deeply. Yeah. And then when it comes to the translation into mm. language, into poetry, you're in that mode too. Yeah. You're, you're putting your nerves into words, right? Yeah. And, and making them sort of spark yeah. in such a way that hopefully you discover that new thing and the reader feels that sort of electrical pulse mm. in mm -hmm. the language and the way that it's all put together yeah. when you finish it. You know? Yeah. That's a really beautiful thought. I'm into it. Okay. Last question. Yeah. What's your dream project or your dream collaboration? Oh, dream project. I have a 
number of different things going on right now. Uh, I'm interested in putting together a book on the Great Salt Lake. I have a, a, uh, some essays and I have a bunch of poems and I have thousands of photographs wow, of the Great, Great Salt Lake. And I would like to get that uh, put together into into a book uh, to celebrate that place yeah, that, that I love. that sounds lovely. Um, so that's something that, that's ongoing. Uh, and then I'm working on putting together uh, some poems into a book. And I also have some prose essays that are ready to go into a book. Great. And I'm almost there. I think that I'll probably have to write another year for the prose essays, but it's, it's, it's starting yeah. to shape in a direction of a book. Are so. these dream projects or are these projects that are just happening? Those are ongoing projects. Okay. I, if I have a collaborative process, that's an interesting question. Uh, yeah, I've, I've been lucky enough to do some of those collaborations, uh, already. Um, I'd love to collaborate with some jazz musicians and play and, and do poems over the top of that. Yeah. I've collaborated. Anybody in particular? Well, you know, Harold would be awesome. Uh, or, or, uh, John Flanders. I love John yeah. Flanders. He's such a great player. Yeah. I think he'd be into it too. Yeah. I, I have a buddy up in, in Montana, Scott Ray, who, uh, I've done some work with actually wrote some poems to a CD. He did. He, he plays slide guitar now, but for a long time was a, a trombone player down in LA. And, mm. and now he does uh, slide guitar, but it's like jazz cool. influence, yeah. uh, uh, almost avant-garde, uh, really interesting stuff. Stuff and and I'd love to do more collaboration with him. Cool. And he's done it with with film as well. So yeah. it'd be fun I to sort of film yeah. language the slide guitar. Cool. So yeah, that sounds great. Yeah. Okay, where can we find you on the internet? And any books you want to plug or anything? Um, right now you can get books at uh, at Sam Weller. Uh, not, uh, not Sam. Um, Ken Sanders has some. Uh, I have some at, at King's English. The the I have uh, two. Uh, books that I collaborated on with uh, my friend Dave Hall, a uh, wonderful painter from Salt Lake. Is there like a uh, website where we can find these things? I don't have a website. That's terrible. See, that's a part of my business and somebody, okay. I, well, somebody should some make titles me get for, for people who, I mean, can we buy your books on the internet? Uh, you should be able to find Winged Insects, that first book. Winged on, Insects. Winged Insects on the internet. And you might be able to get... Uh, uh, Knowing Time by Light and Lessons in Disappearance. Knowing Time by Light, Lessons in Disappearance. And I know the King's English has both of those books and probably okay. Winged Insects too. And I think Ken Sanders does now. Uh, they may also have the smaller chapbooks. Uh, the Rumi chapbook that I did with... Uh, with Scott Ray may be available at Ken Sanders. Uh, it's a, it's a sweet little nine okay. poem book. And then Chopin's preludes that Elick press did. That is a, uh, it's a poem for every one of the preludes, uh, that is probably available at Ken Sanders too. Great. Ken Sanders is a store here in Utah. That, that's here in Salt Lake city. Okay. Yeah. I know yep. King's English, but, um, are you like, are you, do you have like a Facebook page or Twitter? Or I have anything? my own Facebook page, but you can also, you can Google me. I'm okay. Googleable. Okay, uh, and you can find, <laughs> I have some, some, some poems, both in video form. There's actually a reading that I did at, uh, the 15th uh, street gallery, uh, the, a full reading. So you can, you can watch me read poems there. Great. Uh, I, I did a bite sized poem when Catherine Coles was doing those. So mm -hmm. there's one, one cool. of those on YouTube. And oh, then great. there, there are quite a few poems and essays available now. I had, uh, let's see, there's a massage essay that I put up. I have an essay on the spiral jetty in a magazine called away that okay. you can read about short little so if essay. We Google you, you, your name. We will find you. We will find things likely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Thank you so I much so. for talking with me today. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Great questions. Thank you. Thank you.
Thanks for listening to Artifice. Our music is by Jerem Hansen and artwork by Savannah Kiniston. If you'd like to recommend a professional artist for an interview on the podcast, please send me a note through my website, emvocals.com. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Thanks again. Have a great week. Thank you.